All right, let's talk about Mark chapter 8. Uh, the biggest thing to remember as, as we start going through this is this, a lot of this is based on Peter. And you know, like we said, the, the, the official name of this is the Gospel of Peter as told to Mark, which is probably a pretty accurate representation of, of what's going on. The, the book starts with Mark saying Jesus is the Messiah. So the whole book builds up. First, the first part is, takes place in Galilee. We have this middle section we're going to do today. And then the last section takes place in Jerusalem. The whole book builds up to what we're going to talk about today. However, it's probably not what you're thinking. Because, everyone, because Christianity has always played up the transfiguration as the the ultimate in this book. Peter slash Mark will tell you that's not what he's pushing up to. And I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, let's go this way. All right, little review. We, we've basically been running around here. Uh, last couple of weeks, he went up to Tyre. He came back here. He you know, fed the 5,000 over here, fed the 4,000 over here. Uh, the story is very, even though Jesus says, I'm only coming to the Jews, he actually does almost everything he does for both Jew and Gentile. For every miracle he does, he does one. He does a Jewish miracle, he does a Gentile miracle. Uh, he feeds 5,000 Jews, he feeds 4,000 Gentiles. And so he really is forecasting the fact that the gospel is for everyone. And remember, this is written by Mark to the Roman church, which is, which is a mixed church. It's primarily Gentile with a large Jewish subset. And so when you interpret everything, you've got to remember he's talking to two culturally different audiences. Uh, and so today, we're going to go up this little valley up to Caesarea Philippi and Mount Hermon. And it's important to understand context when Jesus starts talking. Because... The way we interpret it and the way it was interpreted in the first century is a little different because they have some context we don't. Uh, this little picture right here, uh, this is actually Mount Hermon in the background. This is the temple to Caesar. The city is called uh, Caesarea Philippi. It's named after Caesar. Uh, Herod the Great was one of the great politicians of all time. Uh, in, in the intro, we talked about the fact that he was actually on the wrong side of the Caesar-Mark uh, Anthony Civil War. He was actually a Mark Anthony backer. Uh, but he managed to not get killed and actually maintain his kingdom after Julius Caesar defeats them. Because his, whichever, a, a writing, he, he went to Julius Caesar and said, you know how great a friend I was to Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Imagine that I'm your friend. I'll be that friend to you. And so he actually ended up with more territory than he started with. And this little section up where now Caesarea Philippi is belonged to another king. And so when that king died, Augustus, Caesar, gave it to Herod. So Herod promptly builds a city to him. And more importantly, that city built this temple. This is the temple to Caesar. Caesar as a god. Caesar is the god, according to 
uh, Herod the Great. So this temple was the one of the first temples that we know of in that century where the emperor became a god. And so it was so this is the temple. This temple is right around where Caesarea Philippi is. So that's the cultural significance and kind of the the context of when Jesus starts moving north to have this conversation in this area. So let's look at it, look at this. So starting at 827, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So envision him walking in the street with his disciples. This temple sits on a hill. He is functionally walking right by this temple as he asks this question. So this is not a, you know, who, who do people say I am? He is walking by the cult of Caesar as a god when he asked this question. So who do people say I am? Some said John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. So others, one of the prophets. And then he asked, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter, you know, it's always Peter. And that's how we know, part of the reason we know this book is written by the Peter, his remembrances, because at the time of this book's writing, Peter is, is the primary apostle to the Jews. Paul would have been to the Gentiles, but they were. if you talked about the top two, the top three would be Peter, Paul, and John. So in this book, there are a lot of uh, reminiscences of Peter. Sometimes Peter looks really good, and sometimes, as we're going to see here in about five verses... He looks really bad. So that's how we know Peter's actually telling the story. Because you would not, in that culture, especially in a Jewish culture, you would not embarrass what is essentially the leader of your, of your religious group. Unless he told you that story. Which is why we think, we're really convinced Peter is telling Mark's this story. But Peter jumps in, he always jumps in first. You are the Messiah. You know, this is the word that John, uh, John Mark starts the book with. Uh, people in that first eight chapters are getting around to that. But this is the first time his disciples look at him and say, you are the Messiah. So this is essentially the center of this book. The book is totally written around this statement right here. Jesus are the Messiah. The people that were around him the whole time have now recognized him for the Messiah. Now we'll see here in a little bit that they recognize him for the wrong Messiah. He, they're trying to fit him into their box of what the Messiah is. But he has recognizing he's the Messiah. And Jesus is about to explode their minds here in the next chapter. And so Jesus tells them, don't tell him about them. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed. And so, who jumps in again? Peter. 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 Peter cannot help it. When something happens, Peter jumps in. And Peter said, took, this is, I love this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Two seconds ago, he says, oh, you're the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are sent here to save our people. And then Peter takes him aside and kind of goes, Jesus, I don't think you know what you're talking about. The Messiah is not supposed to do this. 
And so he takes him aside. And Jesus looked at him and turned and said, so he's in front of all the disciples here. You know, this, this is not, we're not Peter and Jesus in a room. He's in front of the disciples and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So in a short amount of time, we see, we see Peter at the penult, the ultimate. He is visionary. He says, you are the Messiah. And then who knows how many minutes later, he, he's obstructionary. He goes, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You're wrong, Jesus. You're, I mean, if you imagine going to Jesus, who you just said is the Son of God, you're like, oh, you're wrong. I mean, that's Peter in a nutshell right there. And we'll see it the rest of the book. Peter's great, he's high, he's great, and he's horrible in like 60 seconds. So, but this is the core of Mark right there. Jesus is the Messiah. He's recognized by those people around him. He's Messiah. He's doing what the Messiah does. And he, they recognize him for being the Messiah. Now, the downside is they want him to be the Messiah they want, not the Messiah that he has come to be. And so that's the next little section here. I wonder when Jesus said, he's like, don't tell anyone about, about this. But everyone, to me, the Messiah part, because everyone knew well, he I, was doing all these miracles everywhere. He's like, he's well known by then. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because everywhere he goes, he's got, I mean, 5,000 people out in the middle of the desert three days away from everybody. So I don't know why, what's the deal Well, you know, don't tell, okay, don't tell anyone. Well, I mean, they, they didn't, it, it was clear that they wanted to get, they knew him as a healer. I mean, and he, he was fixing their problems. I don't think a lot of people understood him as the Messiah from the, from the Jewish Messiah. Because remember, you know, you've got the four competing theologies, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes. And they all want the Messiah to be what they want the Messiah to be. And so I think uh, Peter, who is speaking for the disciples, the apostles, who become the apostles here, he is the Messiah. He's, oh, you really are the Jewish Messiah. I mean, remember, they were just, you know, he feeds 5,000, they get in the boat on the lake, and they have the storm come up, and they're concerned they're going to drown. And you go like, wait a minute. I would... And Jesus gets up, calms the stuff, and goes, wait a minute. You just saw me feed 5,000. How many baskets do we have left again? And, you know, it's like, you know, people are touching me and being healed. And you still don't have faith. And so it takes a really long time for the apostles to kind of come around and go, well, he really is the Messiah. Yeah, and, you know, because not all of them were there at the baptism. We know a couple of them were who were disciples of John. Uh, but this, this little verse right there is the core of the book of Mark. Jesus is the Messiah. The rest of the book is, now that he is the Messiah, how are the people going to treat him? Yeah, I mean, just as much as Peter had the understanding of the Messiah wrong, it's a good idea for the main group of Jesus not to become public with this is the Messiah, right. because he's got to retrain them. This is not the moment to have the coming down the ladder announcing your religious political. Okay, that's not the that's not the way we're doing Messiah. Right. And so I think that that's because think about where are they when he said when Peter says this, where are they? They're going up to Mount Herod. They're sitting by Caesarea Philippi, where the cult of 
the Caesar as God is. So a lot of this is him not wanting to start, he, he's not, not start the fight yet, or it's, really, it's not really against him and the Romans at this point. He's going to go down to Jerusalem, and once he gets to Jerusalem, Jesus has it out. He's going to clean the temple out. He is not a passive at all once he goes to Jerusalem. But up here, it's like, you know, it's not. I'm not coming against the Romans. I'm not creating a new kingdom, which is what the Romans would care about. You know, because if you go, he's the Messiah. You know, the way Peter thinks of Messiah, uh, it's like. Jesus is going to create a new kingdom, and the Romans are going to get really upset when that happens. Yes? I think that's what saying, what saying, um, everybody knows he's a healer. Like, it sounds to me like maybe what, and I've always, you know, why, don't, why is he saying don't, don't tell anybody? I mean, obviously everybody's hearing and seeing. Is he perhaps telling Peter, don't say anything about being the son, because you don't have full understanding of that. It's obvious he doesn't have Yes, I, because they're trying. Don't, don't go be telling people your theories here because it's not right yet. It, not yeah, yet. because each group wants to push Jesus into their yeah. their form of what Messiah is. When the Pharisees are coming to him, the Pharisees want Jesus to be the ultimate Pharisee and go, "Hey, the Pharisees are right; they're now in charge, and you know we're you can be the number one Pharisee, we're going to be the rest." The, the zealots want Jesus to destroy the Romans and make the Jews the number one on earth again. The Sadducees are looking around going, Jesus, you need to make the temple. You know, the Sadducees are all about the temple. And they want Jesus to come and say, oh, uh, Pharisees, you were wrong. The Sadducees are right. It's all about the temple. The temple becomes the center of worship on earth. And, the, and so... What Jesus is doing is he's, I think when he's telling them, don't tell people, it's like exactly what you said. Don't try to force me, don't try to tell everyone your interpretation of what I need to be. Because I'm not going to be that, as we're about to see in this next little section. And so he comes to this section here, which just blows the disciples' mind. Uh, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, and that for me in the gospel, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can give anyone give in exchange? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. And then he's truly, I'll tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God has come with power. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the primary theology at the time is prosperity theology, which is appropriate for America. Because isn't, isn't that not our number one theology in America? If you're good and you go to school and you behave yourself, you're going to get rich. If you get rich, God loves you. If you're poor, it's because you do bad things. Same theology in the first century. Both the, the Jews had it, and the Greek and the Romans had it, is if you were an obedient Jew, God rewarded you. So therefore, rich is an observant 
Jew. If you're poor, somebody was sinful. It may have been you, it may have been your parents. But prosperity theology between the Greeks and Romans and the Jews was the overwhelming theology. And so the apostles, disciples, that's their mindset. And so they're thinking, oh, we're going to Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem, we're about to be king of the, king of the Jews, right? Remember, temples coated in gold. They're thinking, we're about to be the most powerful people in the world. We're going to be rich, we're going to be famous. So Jesus then throws this little statement in here, talking about the cost of discipleships. And he, these are intentional discordance. That, that's for you, Sandy, a, a real advance. Well, I did pay attention at some point in English classes. Uh, you can't be on, lifted up a cross and follow Jesus, right? Because if you're on the cross, can you walk? No. You're dead. And so he is setting this intentional discordance out. Uh, if you lose your life, how do you find it? If you gain the world, how do you lose it? Or if you lose the world, how do you gain it? Because in their theology, gaining everything in the world, and God loves you. If you lost stuff, and then God did not love you anymore. That's prosperity theology. So he has taken everything that they're all saying and just flipped it on his head right there. Saying, wait a minute, no, 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 no. You're not going to get rich out of this. You're going to be a servant. And so he is now really getting into the core of his theology of what it really means to be a, follower, a disciple of Jesus. The disciples think one thing. Jesus is now teaching them the real truth. And, and that's part of why he tells them to not, because like Jane was saying, they are not ready to hear this. This totally disrupts everything they've all been taught their entire life. And so he sets up these three uh, conflicts. <coughs> and so then Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. That's the big three, right? Uh, leads them up to a high mountain where they're all alone. So this mountain is overlooking Caesarea Philippi. It's overlooking the temple of Caesar as God. Uh, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. And once again, who's the guy that always jumps in? Yeah, we, we all have friends who just can't keep their mouth shut no matter what. Peter's one of those guys. You can see the other <coughs> apostles going, just keep it shut for two seconds. But no, Peter jumps in. Uh, let's put up three shouters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And this, and this is Mark's comment, which probably came from Peter. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And, and so that's how you know, you know, because you know, the only three guys, there are only three guys up there. At the time of the writing of this book, James is dead. I mean, he is killed very, very early on in the, in the history of the church. He's the first apostle who died. Yeah, was that Jesus' brother? No. This is James the apostle. Okay. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. This is John's brother, James. Okay. James the apostle writes the book as Jesus' brother. It gets very confusing because a lot of guys have that same name. 
This, this is the apostle, and he is the first apostle killed. He gets killed very, very early on after the establishment of the church. So we know he didn't tell Mark this story because he's already dead. Uh, and so you have Peter and John, the only two guys left who, who were up there. And uh, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then they looked around and they saw, no longer saw anyone except Jesus. And when they coming down the mountain, Jesus gave orders not to tell anyone what they had seen, for the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matters to themselves, discussing, what does rising from the dead mean? Again, Jesus, to them, Jesus is going to be king. He is not, so they, have, they cannot conceive of this thing where Jesus is going to die. Your king does not die. No, that's later on in the story. That's when he go, when he goes down. I mean, well, I mean, you know, Jesus is raised. Uh, he's raised Jairus's daughter. I mean, it's, they know he's got control over life because he's raised people from the dead or near dead uh, before he's you know. But that, but your king doesn't die. I mean, no, in nobody's story does the you know the hero of the book die. I mean, that doesn't happen. I mean, how can you be king if your king is dead? Or more importantly, if you're for the apostles, how can you be number two and number three if your king is dead? That's what they're really worried about. And they, uh, and they ask him, why did the teacher of the law say Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why is it then that it is written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. Verse 11 apostles have been engaged in behind-the-scenes conversation that people are trying to convince them there's no way this guy's Messiah. Oh, yeah. Conversation's been going on. Oh, yeah. They're, they're having all, all these talks as they go on because, you know, you know, they're steeped in this. You know, these are all very well-educated from a biblical standpoint people. And so they're talking about all these theories uh, and, and the teachings that go on. So when we look at the transfiguration, we have to interpret it in two different ways. There's a Jewish, remember he's writing to a Jewish church and a Roman church. You have to interpret the way the Romans would interpret it, and you'd interpret the way the Jews interpret this. Because to the Romans, who's Moses and Elijah? Don't care. How do we know we don't care? Because Julius Caesar in 40 B.C. went by Jerusalem as a drive-by and conquered them. So therefore, we don't care who their heroes are. All we care about is who's Julius Caesar. He is the, he is the penultimate Caesar. Every Caesar after him took his name. That's how famous he is. And so, looking at it from a, let's look at it from a Jewish standpoint, which is our most common. Uh, who's up there? There are four people up there. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and God. So from a Jewish standpoint, Moses represents the Torah. He wrote the law. Elijah is generally considered the greatest prophet. So you have the two big divisions of the, the Old Testament, the law and the prophet, represented. The other thing that comes up is, you know, Elijah goes to, doesn't die. He goes to heaven in the flaming chariot. The Mishnah at this time the most common, because God took Moses up onto the mountain to look into the Holy Land by himself, so no one saw Moses dying. 
And so the, the rabbis at the time said Moses, God took Moses to heaven. So these, neither one of these two people died, according to Jewish teaching of the time. And so this is what would be the, you know, if you went to the Hall of Fame, you know, you want to, you want to pick the Hall of Fame of uh, the Jewish teachers and prophets, here's your Hall of Famers. And so you have this up here, from the Jewish standpoint, the greatest Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And then they talk to Jesus and then they disappear and Jesus is left. So it's very much, from a Jewish standpoint, a passing of the torch, if you will, to the grace of the Jews to Jesus. He's equivalent to them. From a Roman standpoint, who's he talking? Who's who's talking to Jesus here? They're think of where he's at. He's at Mount Herod, overlooking the temple to Caesar. And who's talking to him? Whose voice comes out? God. So, in a Roman view, you know, you got Zeus, who's the the greatest of the gods. So this was the equivalent of Zeus, God, speaking to Jesus, saying, you know, this, you know, listen to him. So you, you've got the two cultures, this one scene elevates Jesus to the top <coughs> in both cultures at the same time. So it's not just a Jewish story, it's also a Roman story. And he's above the temple of Caesar. So in just where he's standing and what's going on to a Roman audience, you're saying Jesus is greater than Caesar. Which is maybe also one of the reasons why he tells the guys, don't tell them about this. Because, you know, what's, what's the rule of the Romans? Do what you want, but pay your taxes, and don't rebel. Saying Jesus is greater than Caesar would be interpreted as a rebellion. Because that, when we get to the end of the book, that's how Jesus gets killed. The Romans put him to death because the Jews finally convince the Romans that he's a threat to them. And so that's the two things I think they're going on the transfiguration at this point. What do they mean in that verse that Elijah must come first? The teaching at the time is that Elijah is going to come back because Elijah never died. So God is going to send Elijah back to prepare the way for the Messiah. Where did that come from? Malachi. There's some teachings in Malachi, and then when you get into the Mishnah, the writings around the Bible, there's a lot of theories that get up. But as a very common theory at the time, is Elijah's coming back in person to prepare the way for the Messiah. Because it says on that great dreadful day when Elijah returned or something. I can't remember the exact word. It's a minor project. Right. I've ran into that before. Yeah, and so it, it, they're, very, they're very much... So they're not looking for the Messiah as much as they're looking for Elijah. And, and, and Jesus, in, the, in, in, uh, in this book and in Matthew, Jesus says, and that's what actually... When he says this part right here in, 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 Mo, in uh, Matthew he expands it even more is that John the Baptist was Elijah John the Baptist was the guy who was sent by God to prepare the way for me the Messiah so he's at, he actually tells him no 
Elijah has come. It was John. And you kill him. And so that's what he's talking about here. That Elijah does come from and restore all things. Elijah has come and they've done him everything they wished. I.e., people listened to him, sort of, and then he got put in prison and he got killed. Because he challenged, back to Angus, he challenged the power structure of the day. I think it's Malachi 4 and 5 where it says, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. And so, yeah, because Elijah, Elijah is the superhero of prophets. Uh, and so now we're coming down the mountain. But they told the three of them, don't tell anything about it until Jesus comes back from the dead. Uh, and then, it, so they had, you have this great experience, and they get to the bottom and we have an argument. Uh, and the others, they saw a large crowd. Because once again, everywhere that Jesus goes, crowds follow. They all know him in this area because he's healing people. Uh, and the teacher of the law were arguing. The teacher of the law, by the way, means Pharisees. Uh, as soon as they saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. And he said, what are you arguing about? And then we have this story here about uh, this child. It's important to understand he's talking about the child here. Because in that culture, children were not considered valuable. We have a very child-centric culture. Our kids are very valuable to us. They loved their children, but kids were not considered important <coughs> until they became adults. So you don't wrap your life around your children in this culture. And so... Jesus come down to heal a child is a he's again flipping everything on itself. Uh, and it's a healing. And so he has a convulsion, he heals him. Uh, and then if you can, which is an interesting comment because we're in this area where Jesus has healed hundreds, if not thousands of people. So, I, um, I don't know what to make of it. I've read a bunch on this. People are all over the spectrum on what this means. Uh, and if you can, everything is possible for those who believe. And then we hear, I do believe, help me over, overcome my own belief. And then Jesus, interesting, he doesn't want to do it in front of people. Because again, when the spirits come out, what do they know? What do they call it? Son of God. He goes, you are, you know, the Spirit's recognizing who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. So he heals him before the crowd gets there. And, they, oh, he's a corpse. No, he's not. Lifts him up. And then the disciples are getting better now. They wait till they're in private. And then they go, uh, why couldn't we drive this one out? And he says, you know, this kind can only come out by prayer. Because, again, the, the disciples are trying to force Jesus into the form that they want him to be as the Messiah, not the form he really is. And so, you know, so we're up here, now we're coming back down to season Capernaum now. The rest of the book, we're, we're going to go down to Jerusalem. I don't think I understand that, though, about 
blocked the healing. They blocked the disciples healing. Uh, the, the, one one author I read said they were trying to heal him out of a uh, a sense of entitlement or power. You know, Jesus gave me the power, so come out. Instead of recognize that the power comes from God, and that you need to pray, and God does the healing, not me. It's kind of think uh, back to Moses and the rock and the water. Very similar. You know, it's no the water. The power comes from God creating the, opening the rock and the water coming out. And then tell, so, you know, the apostles were, had been, earlier in the book, they're running around, they're healing people, right? And, you know, that's pretty easy to get the feeling of, oh, wow, it's me. And I think this, ep, this episode is inserted here to remind them that, no, it's not really you. It's, it's God. It's where we just came, we just came from Mount Hiram. Where was God? Up there. It all comes from God. So I think that's the story he's telling them. And then he throws another story in here, which is flipping everything on his head again. Uh, they were going through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he's teaching the disciples. The problem is, when they know where he's at, thousands of people show up, and he's, his compassion is he has to heal them. And so he goes, I, you know, I want to be alone by disciples. I need to teach them because we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. The, the disciples don't think that, but he's going to die. And so he came to Capernaum, is in his house, and he says, uh, you know, he's teaching them, uh, the Son of Man will be killed in three days. And they didn't understand it because they were afraid to ask him. He keeps saying, you know, Jesus keeps saying this thing, that he's going to die, he's going to raise in three days. And they're like, okay, he doesn't die. Well, yeah, the last person that got into that conversation before we get to say, Yes. Yeah, I mean, I want to bring that up again. Yeah, so yeah, it's, <laughs> they're, they're kind of talking, and then uh, they kind of, he says, what were you arguing about? And here's how you know that they're, they're not understanding this whole flipping on the head thing. Um, uh, who's the greatest? You know, you can just kind of see them go, I don't know the greatest, you know. You know, they want they want to be you know they want to be the it's all about power it's the same thing in that healing they couldn't do it because it's not they want the power they don't realize it's in in the servanthood that Jesus is calling you to be a servant and so uh, so he sits them down he takes the twelve so he's in a house just the twelve anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. This is a total flipping again of the relationships that exist at the time. They think they're, they're going to be kings, they're going to be powerful. And he takes the child, whoever welcomes one of these children, because again, children are loved, but they are not valuable in that, in that culture. They are not the center of the universe. Uh, and then he talks about uh, some things here and then we get down to uh, worms that do not eat do not that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched Isaiah 66 uh, and everyone will be salted with fire uh, and that kind of comes around to the uh, a concept of the time that everyone will be purified so if you walk through the fire and you live then you're, you're a disciple and you're purified 
and those who are evil will not survive the fire. So this is Jesus again flipping everything on it. He said, "It's not about power. It's not about power. It's God." That's the entire first part. It's not about power. It's not about power. It's about service. It's not about power. It's about servants. Serve, serve us. It's not about power. And every time he goes at the apostles jump back to, "I want power." That's why I didn't want him talking. He's been showing all along who he is. I'm a servant. I touch people you don't touch. I include people you don't include. I I want to be among the poor. I want to be among the oppressed. I want to be among those possessed with demons. I want to help. I want to serve. That's not what they go around talking about. They no. Just talk about the they, they, want, they, want, they want to cure people. They want to be in charge. And exactly. And, and, they, and they look at it and go, uh, they're arguing about, I want to be second and third. You know, we don't want to be number one. Jesus, you're number one, but I want to be number two, right? Yes. You know, these stories have so many layers. Some of those layers, like, how Jesus is flipping everything. You, you can delve into, I think there's some connections to all this in the sense that can, when they come down, the three of them have been on the mountain. They come down, this guy can't be healed by right. Behind the scene conversation, I imagine, would be Peter, James, and John kind of meeting with the other nine and saying, you know, how does that do that? How does that do that? And so they don't hear any of this conversation Jesus says about. Going to die and they'll be raised. They can't understand it. The reason they can't understand it is because they're having this conversation. Oh, it's the best. Totally. And they come up with the answer in their conversation. Even in the midst of this, like being like a child where Jesus is trying to get this message across in their humanity, they, they come up with the answer. Peter, you remember on the mountain what Jesus just called you? God, yeah. God had to shut you up. Even yeah. Be quiet. So, who are the two that have it's got to be? It's got to be James, and it's got to be John, and those are the two who are just about to come forward and say it. Right, and we're going to see that in about a chapter. So it's all, there's kind of this, this this humanness that's going on, and Jesus is trying to get this message across in the midst of all that, and sometimes I think that's our problem. Right. Humanity keeps us from hearing this message of servanthood, who's first. Right, and, and, and this is Jesus' entire the gospel. You want to be first? Be last. We have to be served at all. Mm-hmm. Which again, prosperity theology, their dominant theology. Is he right. He wants to. Right. He wants to. Right. A rabbi wouldn't either. Right. A rabbi wouldn't either. I mean, that's a servant's job, a slave's job. Yeah. And Jesus, Jesus is going to do that at the last, at the last Isn't supper. Isn't he also trying to say that? I mean, the Pharisees and Sadducees created millions of rules that didn't exist from the word of God. I mean, they, they, they took their own interpretations and subjected people to rules that didn't even, that didn't come straight from God. And, oh, and he's telling them... Well, yeah, earlier... So many of these things are not important. What is really important is how you care about someone else and how you treat other people and how you serve the others. Right, it's, you know, it's, it's the greatest commandment, right? Love the God and love the neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's the entire gospel in one statement. If you can get that right, you get everything right. The rest of the whole, everything else we write is 
church is not wanting to do that statement, and the apostles and all the writers in the church going, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's go back to the original. What, what are you supposed to do again? What are you supposed to do? What are we supposed to learn out of the fact that the disciples had more, the apostles had more difficulty accepting Jesus for who he really was than most of the people who came after he died? Like, tons of people would just hear one thing or see one thing and they instantly believed and knew. I mean, people touched him that had never heard his words hardly and knew they'd be saved or knew they'd be healed or whatever, but the disciples themselves were so closed off about... Again, you're, they're, they're trying to force Jesus into the mold they want him to be in because they're inverting the hierarchy. Who's more important, Jesus or them? They want to do it this way because I want to put Jesus in a box because I want him to do what I want him to do. It's so hard to follow a guy and not have self-interest. Oh, it is. Again, right. Prosperity theology, right? Hey, if I'm following God, God's going to make me rich. You know, I'm going to be healthy. I'm not going to have problems in life. My Facebook's going to look better than everyone else's. The aspect that most people never pay attention to the name of God or Jesus throughout the narrative of the Bible is that serving God is not a pleasurable experience. It's really rough. You lose things, lose people. You may lose your own life, and you go through hell to do it. Oh, absolutely. And we, we miss that suffering aspect. And Christ came and showed us if you go this way, you will suffer. And I think it's kind of interesting that here we are today, and people have no idea what the suffering piece is, and they don't want to see it. Oh, it's it's totally that way. And then, you know, it, again, it's power, it's pride. <laughs> this story, which is the next story, John, now, you know, oh, yeah. by the first time, Peter doesn't say something. John says it. You know, James and John are the sons of thunder, right? <clears throat> a little later in Matthew, they want to destroy a village because they won't listen to them. They're as bad as Peter. Well, I think it's significant because they have come to the answer. Right. And John or James is now the, the top two. No they're, yeah, yeah. They're, they're clearly going like, uh, Peter's kind of out of it now. You know, <laughs> He's dropped out of the presidential race. You know, it's less than us two, and we're brothers. One of us is going to be number one, and going to be number two. So John throws, so John clearly did this. <laughs> Teacher, we saw someone driving up demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. I.e., he didn't have, he didn't ask our permission to do this. He didn't know you. He didn't. He had to be really following you, following you. Yeah. Right. And Jesus goes, "What? Don't stop him. If he's doing a miracle in my name, no one who can does that can say anything bad about me because he's a, because." Anyone gives a cup of water in my name because you belong to Messiah will not lose a reward. It gets back to that servant mentality again. Realizing, and this is John being hierarchical. And, and exclusive. Exclusive. Jesus and, you know, breaks that wall again and right. brings it back to an inclusive gospel when he says, do not stop them. Because some of us say, oh, we got to make them quick. They, they ain't been over here with us. That's right. Hey, you know, it, doesn't say, it doesn't say Church of Christ in their name. Yeah, they, they can't. They can't. <laughs> not, we're going to go there. That's right. They, they can't be. They can't be real Christians, or they can't be. You know, it doesn't say Southern Baptist. It doesn't say Catholic. Independent yeah. Baptist. Independent ye
that that's that's what John's doing here. It's going like, uh, we're not. It doesn't say you don't have the official disciple tattoo. Is what he's saying. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's about me. It's not about you. If he's a disciple of me, if he's doing what God sent me to do, if he's given me the glory, and things are happening because he threw he threw the demon out. What what did the apostles just what did the apostles were unable to do two seconds ago? Throw out a demon. What this guy just do? He threw out a demon. So through faith. Through faith. So you have to remember that. So the wrap up of the whole uh, transfiguration is disciple behavior. Behavior is inextricably. There's another good word for you, Sandy. I had to look that one up by the way to make sure I spelled it right. <laughs> bound to believe. They cannot be divorced. If you believe, you do. And if you do, you believe. That's what he's telling us. You can't, you can't be a mental only Christian. And you can't be one of my disciples. He said, I believe. It's what you do. You, the belief comes through you to the point that you do. You can't not do if you're a disciple of Jesus. And then having done your belief in Jesus. Right. It's, it's, it's a cycle. You can't have one without the other. That's what Jesus is teaching here. You can't, if you do, this guy, you know, this guy he just shows who did, he goes, well, you know he's a disciple because he did and it worked. He's a disciple of mine. And yeah, I know, you guys don't know him, but, he, but I know him. And so that's what Jesus is saying here in this whole thing. He's flipping it over again. It's not about power. It's not about pride. It's about service. And like I said, it it isn't always going to be fun and games. When you're a servant, sometimes bad things happen, especially when you point out truth to power and you, you point out injustices that exist. Bad things may happen at that point. So remember that: if you believe, you do; and if you do, you believe. All right. See you next week. Thank you.